Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel podcast at Ebooks Network. I'm your podcast host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You could find out about me and my background at rajbalkaran.com slash academia. More importantly is the fact that I'm in conversation today with Chakravarti Rampasad, who is a fellow of the British Academy, and he is also a distinguished professor of comparative religion and philosophy at Lancaster University. He goes by Ramswakal as such. Hello, Ram, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, right, so you and I are going to have a conversation <laughs> about conversation because um, Chakravarti is the co-editor, along with Brian Black, of a very exciting um, publication. It is called In Dialogue with Classical Indian Traditions, Encounter, Transformation, and Interpretation. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the larger project that this exciting volume is part of. Right. Um, so this is a project um, called Dialogue in the Indian Traditions that um, is led by Brian Black, who is my colleague in the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at Lancaster University. Uh, I'm the co-I and his uh, mentor. Uh, we were funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council of the United Kingdom uh, primarily for him to pursue a very exciting uh, project on dialogue in the Mahabharata, uh, a monograph that he will uh, soon be completing. We wanted um, to build around the work on dialogue that Brian had earlier done. And while we uh, both agree, and in some of my work, uh, I've been working on the uh, the idea of dialogue and how it's represented and what happens with it in the Mahabharata. But we felt that uh, capacious though the Mahabharata was, it's in fact located within a much wider uh, cultural trope of using conversation um, and engagement, verbal and nonverbal, specifically self-aware and sometimes implicit, between a variety of uh, people and perspectives. And while we hear quite a great deal about almost the birth of Western philosophy in the Socratic dialogues um, as written by Plato, uh, there has been comparatively little attention paid to dialogue in the Indian traditions. There is, in fact, a, a larger book series uh, that Routledge is bringing out called Dialogues in South Asian Traditions, religion, philosophy, literature, and history, that Brian and I, together with Professor Laurie Patton at Middlebury College, um, are series editors for. And we have had, in fact, um, several very interesting books that have already come out in it. But, um, for example, on shared Jain Buddhist and Hindu narratives and about some of the thematic issues about dialogue in early South Asian religions. But with this project, uh, particularly this volume uh, and and the conference that preceded it, we want to look at different dimensions of dialogue across 
uh, the various Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain traditions, often between themselves and sometimes amongst themselves. And we wanted to thematize them, not so much because we wanted to say too much about a, a kind of a theory of dialogue, which we felt was going to close off the possibilities of what dialogue meant. Now, that's for two reasons. One is that uh, the very concept of dialogue, of course, and, and its use in English might be thought to be quite deeply located within a particular modern Western idea, particularly in Christian theology, of how one could be committed to one's own uh, beliefs and perspectives, but also engage respectfully and learn from other traditions. And there's a very long history about uh, over the last 100, 150 years about dialogue uh, named as such in, the, uh, in, in Western uh, theology in particular and philosophy of religion. Now, there are, of course, uh, words uh, uh, which contain the concepts very uh, similar to and comparable to dialogue, especially uh, words like, say, samvada, which literally means uh, talking together, or vada itself, which can often be interpreted not just as speech or, or uh, discourse, but also as conversation. And we also have um, terms like uh, samagama, uh, which is almost directly translatable as intercourse and carries with it almost exactly the same semantic range as the English word does. So we do have these words. But um, whenever we use these words in, uh, from, from English or other Western languages, uh, embedded as they are in uh, history of Western philosophy, we have to be careful to then not go looking for exactly that concept and that same way of carving up issues in other traditions. We could say the same thing about ethics or metaphysics or epistemology uh, or politics. In fact, any of the books by, uh, of Aristotle's, uh, any of the titles of Aristotle's books, uh, you know, we could, we could go looking for them. But then we close off the, the way in which these traditions themselves articulated these ideas. So it's much better to keep a, a rather open uh, sense of what a word might be and then fill in through careful attention to texts, their context, their functions and their content, fill that in so that the reader may in fact experience for themselves how the ideas which are contained in these traditions resonate with, are comparable to, and sometimes are illuminatingly contrastive with uh, the way these terms are used in their native context, i.e. in English or German or French. So we didn't so much want to step out, therefore, and say, well, this is what dialogue means in Indian uh, thought, and therefore uh, we could then map it on to how it's been used in, um, in Christianity or in Western philosophy. Also, we felt that once we had given this word uh, this very general feel in English language, so we're not using it in some dramatic way, uh, dramatically different way, once we had sort of um, evoked the associations with the word dialogue, we really wanted to get down into the details. We wanted to look at particular texts, uh, sometimes very short passages, sometimes longer compositions, and then um, let our uh, collaborators explain for themselves what they want uh, to say about this concept. And so we really wanted to make it uh, sort of uh, constructed from the ground up. 
it's for this reason that we brought uh, people together for a, a conference and uh, the result of which was this book and the book in itself uh, resonates with uh, some of the other uh, work that Brian and I uh, are doing or have been doing. Well, it seems quite clear from the, the layout of the book and, and as you mentioned in the introduction that um, this collection of essays does not in any way strive to define or narrow or limit or delimit the idea or notion of what dialogue is, nor does it strive to compare dialogue to other traditions, but it strives to do exactly what I believe is the needed um, very powerful first step, uh, expositing and showing um, the ways in which, the very rich ways in which dialogue is used in South Asian religions, um, uh, Hinduism in particular, but as noted by some of the authors um, in early uh, Hinduism, in early South Asian religions, the, the, the demarcation between Hinduism and say Buddhism is uh, tenuous at best. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about this very useful way in which you organize these papers? Maybe tell our audience how many papers there are, and particularly I'd love for you to uh, dive into the, the, the three-part organization between encounter, transformation, and interpretation. Sure. Uh, so there are, um, in fact, uh, 13 papers and an introduction and a very thoughtful uh, afterward by Laurie Patton. And we uh, structured them around these three ideas of encounter, transformation, and interpretation. That is to say, um, we broadly worked with the idea of dialogue as some kind of an engagement, um, usually but not, not always involving uh, language, because sometimes it could be communication through uh, symbols and silence and so forth. We wanted to look at how people might talk, uh, how this might be found in uh, these different traditions. And broadly, what we did under these three uh, classifications of encounter, transformation, and interpretation was to um, map out, by no means exclusively, uh, three of the dimensions of uh, the, the, the treatment of dialogue, as we thought we found in these papers. So by encounter, we asked uh, more specifically, what was, who was meeting? Uh, how did they meet? What was the nature of that encounter? What were the purposes of that encounter? So by encounter, we wanted to open up the possibility that sometimes it might be to do with language, but sometimes it could be through a teacher communicating through um, signs, symbols, uh, perhaps even silence. The encounter itself is important because it, um, the people who are involved in it um, become relevant to the kinds of questions that are being raised. So, for example, when we look at uh, a repeated type of dialogue, which is between a sage and a king, um, or in the case you know, of the Buddha and a king, between somebody that is who has renounced uh, the normal kinds of domestic and political attachments to the world and someone who exemplifies the power of those kinds of social, uh, political and domestic uh, wealth. When we look at that connection, that encounter between them, 
the ideas themselves will naturally be about the nature and limits of knowledge, of authority, of power, of sociality, and so forth. But the ideas are exemplified in the people who are in that conversation. And therefore, we felt that the very structure of the encounter, the context that the content of the conversation had, was an important aspect of what we should be looking at. Another very uh, sort of uh, recurrent and important theme of these kinds of encounters is the transformation that happens as a result of it. Now, sometimes that transformation might be, uh, as we might, for example, find in uh, classical Western thought, to do with uh, the changing of one's mind, the changing of one's opinions. Uh, but there is something deeper, even in the classical Western material, uh, which is, just, which is the, the, the change in, in how one conducts oneself. In the Hindu, Buddhist, and uh, Jain traditions, this transformation can be extremely far-reaching. They're transformative in the sense that the very uh, nature of the consciousness of uh, one of the people involved, uh, the way in which they are going to understand themselves, and the way in which we come to understand who they are, are all occasioned by a preparedness to engage in dialogue, listen, and be changed. So this transformative potential of dialogue is extremely important uh, when we look at the, uh, these Indian traditions because they continue to resonate down to our times. Indeed, when uh, the modern reader looks at these materials, you hear about the Buddha talking to Ajata Shatru, or you, talk, you, you uh, listen to uh, some uh, sage or uh, monk talking to possibly even a historical uh, king, what you are as a modern reader doing is to prime yourself to be transformed in the same way as the reader is. And this can be quite far-reaching. One of the papers, for example, talks about the transformation of um, the Prince Rama by his, um, in, in, in a conversation with his teacher in a text called the Yoga Vasishta. Now, already by the time of the composition of this sort of broadly medieval work, the author would know, the immediate uh, readers would know, and we know that this prince is in fact an avatar of God on earth. Uh, so Vishnu come down as Rama. But we also know that Rama is, for complex narrative reasons, wholly human. So he is, while we know that there is a framing by which he is the divine, within his own life, he does not realize himself as such. So we have in the Yoga Vasishta an extraordinary situation in which God is a human who learns from a learned human about how to transform his own consciousness. So we know that when Rama listens in the Yoga Vasishta and 
learns about the nature of reality, the nature of how to practice the transformation of consciousness through imagination and disciplined meditation, that the end product is going to be his recognition of himself. But in making that lesson clear, the Yoga Vasishta tells us that we ourselves can divinize our consciousness, that we can open up the limited nature of who we are to this ultimate absolute consciousness. So there is a transformation which is described, enacted, delineated within the text, but in encountering it as readers, as adherents of these traditions, we hope and aim to transform ourselves. The third type of dialogue, uh, or third way in which we thematized uh, dialogue, was interpretation. So this might be broadly seen as um, our reading of a hermeneutic out of the form of dialogue in these texts. So what we mean by interpretation is that these texts are sometimes very clear about how we are to read them. At other times, they are much more implicit. They allow us to follow the, the, the text, but they leave it to us to make sense of what the significance of this tradition is. So, for example, in um, the case, uh, in, 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 a, in a narrative from the Ramayana that uh, you know, all Hindus will know, uh, we hear of how uh, Rama while wandering in exile in the forest uh, in search of uh, Sita, who has been abducted by Ravana, how he meets the, uh, uh, the, uh, the monkey ruler or ex-ruler Sugriva and agrees to help him uh, kill his uh, brother Valin, who has dispossessed him. And Sugriva says that if Rama helps him, he will uh, use the monkey army, the Vanaras, to search for Sita. And we know that, in fact, Vali is, as the, as, as the Ramayana itself makes clear, that Vali is, in fact, the legitimate king, although in his anger at Sugriva's attempt to uh, take up the kingdom, Vali has, in fact, um, taken Sugriva's uh, wife as one of uh, his own wives. So there is that error, but otherwise, Vali is in fact functioning uh, as perhaps the legitimate ruler, and yet out of friendship for Sugriva, Rama uh, in the end kills Valin from hiding while Valin and Sugriva are fighting, and it is clear that there is no way Sugriva can overcome Valin, who's a warrior. Dying, Valin finds his killer coming out into the open. Dying, Valin then um, castigates and chastises Rama for having flouted various norms of kingly conduct. And Rama 
does reply, but his replies, the tradition itself has recognized in many forms and in commentaries, the replies themselves are not that very persuasive. So Valin gives voice to a perspective about the creatures of the jungle, uh, beings who are marginal to the uh, civilized norms of the city and the kingdom that Rama represents. Valin challenges Rama's interpretation of the very idea of dharma, which Rama is supposed to exemplify. And yet Rama's reply is quite um, problematic, isn't necessarily convincing. Nevertheless, at the end of what Rama says, something happens to Balin, and without explicitly saying anything about the rightness of Rama's argument, Valin nevertheless concedes to Rama uh, and surrenders his dying spirit to Rama and turns instead to look at the future for his son and his wife and so forth. So now here is a text in which you have the exemplar of dharma for Hindus, nevertheless doing something that the tradition has said doesn't seem to be dharmic, requires interpretation. Why is it that the argument of Vali somehow still seems more persuasive than Rama? What is it to say that unknown to Rama himself, he exemplifies something that perhaps Valin recognizes and which Hindus recognize, which is that Rama himself is the divine. Now, the interpretation of this um, event is not something that is specified in the text itself. So the text is not teaching in the way the Upanishads might teach, in the way the Yoga Vasishta might teach, in the way uh, you know, the Buddha's teachings might convey. In this, we are left with the challenge, but also the promise of having to learn by ourselves what this dialogue means. So in doing so, the tradition um, has over multiple versions of the Ramayana, but also in commentaries on the Ramayana, something that happens right to this day with uh, cinema and TV serials and so on. It seeks to interpret the meaning of dialogue. It brings a different kind of a relationship between the reader or the onlooker and the text, which is different from uh, the transformation, although, of course, encounter, transformation, and interpretation are all connected to each other, and the different papers that we have put under these categories might equally well move around because any one uh, dialogue is both is, is at the same time an encounter, is transformative or has a transformative potential, and also requires a particular hermeneutic approach, which the text itself gives us, or we must find for ourselves. It's a very rich um, tripartite mode of looking or grouping 
the various analyses found in the volume, of which there are 13. And of course, uh, you refer to yours, which is the, the, the last one. It's a dialogue in extremist violin in the Valmiki Ramayana. Two things come to mind. Uh, one, um, uh, you may or may not know, but um, this particular topic is quite resonant with my, my work in that I analyze Sanskrit narrative. And um, uh, having done some work on the Devi Mahatmya, recent publication, mm-hmm. The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth, um, the, the work on the Devi Mahatmya stemmed from this question about the dialogue, really and truly. Why, is the, why are these glories of the goddess told to a king by a sage in the forest? And so much of what is laid out in, the, in this publication of yours um, really bespeaks to an internalized way in which um, one often reads Sanskrit narrative. So the whole thing is, all that we know about the, about the Devi and the Devi Mahatmya is because of this, this uh, forest setting encounter and the subsequent transformation of the king in the, in the closing narrative to go forth and worship the Devi. And of course, this is all quite open to interpretation. So it's quite useful. Um, if I may comment on the specific content of, of your article, which is, which is also very interesting, um, the same question vexed me greatly when I was studying the Valmiki Ramayana. And uh, one of the ways in which this is just, I, I share this story to show that um, in our dialogue, even there's so much room for interpretation of these texts. Um, I interpreted the, the, the slaughter of Valen as, as really um, uh, one of the defenses Rama gives. His weakest defense, I think, is the most telling that he was hunting. He likens himself to a hunter which completely subverts not his, his humanity and his, his, his dharma as a noble warrior. And I think this is a thread that's throughout the Valmiki Ramayana. If you look at the very opening, um, the, the bija of it, the, the, the uh, Valmiki laments the, the slaughter of a Akrauncha. Um, there's this idea that, that uh, there's a subversive idea that likens even uh, justified violence to the wanton violence of the hunter. And in that moment, you see it peeking through even in the case of Rama. So anyhow, mm. fast, fascinating ideas. Um, there's so much in this volume that we really could talk about. Exactly, uh, yes. I mean, I do, I must say that uh, I would, if we do have the time, of course, it's worth looking at uh, other papers, but of course, then you're left with saying, well, uh, we, could, we could actually go through all of the papers because they're there for a reason and each has some very interesting things to say. Uh, so it might perhaps be you know, useful if um, you ask particular questions, but we will have our readers, uh, listeners keep in mind that um, whatever we are able to cover in the course of this conversation, uh, there's a great deal more in the book and that they should really look at it. They should definitely look at the book. Um, maybe it would be useful if we started off with just a sentence or two as you lay out an intro of each of the papers. Pardon, I didn't catch that. Perhaps it would be useful if we start off with just a sentence or two about each of the publications as you lay out in the intro. Sure, sure, sure. We could do that. Uh, so the, the, the sequence of papers starts with um, Brian Black's uh, paper, Sources of Indian Secularism? Question mark, Dialogues on Politics and Religion in Hindu and Buddhist Traditions. And in this, he compares uh, one conversation in the Bradharanika Upanishad between the sage Yagnivalkya and King Janaka, and one from the Buddhist Diga Nikaya, 
from the Pali uh, materials uh, or between the Buddha and King Ajatasattu. And what he finds is that although each of them relies on a different kind of metaphysics of who the human being is, um, nevertheless, each addresses almost in parallel the relationship between the political and the religious authority in each case, uh, and also about the um, plurality of religious views that each context is clearly aware of. And so Brian suggests that perhaps this um, mediation between different sources of authority and the plurality of the irreducible plurality of groups is itself the earliest model of what we now think of as Indian secularism. In the second chapter, uh, Naomi Appleton uh, writes uh, a paper called The Dialogue with Solitary Buddhas. Now, this is very interesting because in the Pali canonical materials, you have these Pachek Buddhas who are supposed to be completely solitary, and yet they're also repeatedly interacting with others. And she looks at this very interesting uh, example in which a prince comes to visit a Pacheka Buddha, but the Pacheka Buddha himself leaves the hut empty with only a footprint left behind to indicate that he was there. But that is sufficient for the prince to then sit and contemplate on the empty bench in the empty hut in front of the footprint that has been left behind and become a Pacheka Buddha himself. So this really shows that the when we talk about dialogues, we're not literally talking about the logos, about the word. We are talking about other forms of communication, which in this case uh, combine symbolism and silence. Another way of expressing what we mean by dialogue at its very limits uh, comes from the next paper by Jacqueline Southern Hurst called Refutation or Dialogue? Question mark, Shankara's Treatment of the Bhagavatas. Now, this again, at first blush, does not look like a, um, a dialogue because this is really about uh, Shankara's, the great Advaita philosopher's uh, explanation of opposing positions in his Brahma Sutra Bhashya. And he does something that many of the, uh, the classical Indian uh, sort of philosophers within the, the Pramanavada mold, that is to say people who are primarily interested in epistemological and metaphysical debate, they often do, which is they lay out uh, the arguments of their opponents while explicitly saying that they are seeking to refute them uh, and establish their own ultimate view. So you might think that that's not much sure for a dialogue, which is why uh, Sutton Hurst asks, is this refutation or dialogue? But she says, in some of these cases, especially in, in the case of this book, with the uh, position of the uh, Bhagavata sect, that Shankara is not simply refuting his opponents, but he's conducting a dialogue with them because he starts with common ground between his own position and that of his Bhagavata interlocutors on the nature of the supreme, on the nature of the ultimate. 
So what she says is that in laying out very carefully the views of his opponent and then debating with them with the, with the intention of refuting them, Shankara is enacting what is effectively the nature of dialogue, which is to listen respectfully to the other person, but at the same time argue for the rightness of your own view. This kind of uh, philosophical thinking, which is implicitly dialogical, is also pursued in Elisa Freshi's paper, We Resort to Reason, the argumentative structure in Venkatanatha's Sheshwara uh, Mimamsa. So she looks at the, uh, the great 13th century uh, figure Venkatanatha, otherwise known as uh, Vedanta Deshika, and the systematization of the Vishishta Advaita Vedanta school. So she uh, looks at how he uses several dialogical structures to uh, deal with different types of dis discussions. And she asks, you know, what his motivations are for the different approaches he, uh, he takes. So an interesting aspect uh, she claims for Venkatanatha's approach is that um, the dialogue is, as it were, an encounter which transcends time because Living as he is at this point, he's taking as much interest in the exegetical school of the Mimamsakas, with whom he is very much in active debate, uh, and they are very much a flourishing school at that time, but he treats them in the same way, with the same interest and assiduous attention to detail, as he does with various Buddhists, long after Buddhism had ceased to be part of the Indian philosophical scene. So in a sense, he is using the structure of dialogue to transcend time, to um, present a dialogical encounter as a kind of epistemological undertaking, an optimistic one, because it seems to suggest whether these ideas are, strictly speaking, socially found in the present or in the past, they nevertheless offer us a template for finding truth in the future. In her chapter, Speakers of Highest Truth, philosophical plurilogues about Brahman in the early Upanishads, going back again to the very uh, earliest layers of uh, Indian materials, Jessica Frazier also pushes the notion of dialogue to uh, uh, the limit in another way. She points out that many of these kinds of um, discussions that are presented in the Upanishads are not dialogical in the strict sense of being the words between the two, but rather they are really collaborative search for broader um, sort of ultimate truths. So she says that actually we should think about a model in the Upanishads for conversation leading to truth, encounters between different people, as the construction of a collaborative model. And in as much as this is not about community building, it is at least something to do with idea building, the creation of a whole thought world. We now move on to the, um, the second section of the book, which is about transformation. I've already said quite a lot about uh, the Yoga Vasishta. 
uh, this is a paper written by James Madayo called Transformative, uh, Transformative Dialogue in the Yoga Vasishta, which looks at the um, way in which the sage uh, Vasishta instructs Prince Rama. And as I already mentioned, we know that he is the divine, but he is not himself aware of that divinity. In his paper, uh, Madayo focuses particularly on the discussion between an enlightened queen called Chudala and a rather materialistic husband, Shikadvaja. And Madayo situates the, the, the inquiry, vichara, about the radical Advaita or non-dual interpretive framework of the Yoga Vasishta in relation to the work's analysis of the apparently uh, egotistic or egoic agent, that is to say the materialistic king, so that when you look at uh, the discussion between the queen and her husband, what we are seeing is also the discussion between the sage and the god who does not know himself. And at a third layer, we are also looking at how we might transform ourselves through understanding these uh, discussions. In a paper called Being Human Dialogically, Lynn Thomas offers a close reading of a dialogue from the Aranyaka Parvan of the Mahabharata between Yudhishthira, the eldest of the Pandavas, and a snake called Nahusha. Now, Nahusha is actually a, a, a divine being, a king of the gods, who has been reduced to being a snake because of a curse. Thomas makes a very interesting argument here that it's not only about the details of the conversation between Yudhishthira and Nausha that are important, but also um, who these people are. At the start of the conversation, Yudhishthira is, of course, um, the representative of social order because the virtues he advocates generosity, speaking kindly to others, telling the truth, practicing non-injury. These are virtues that are possible only in relation to others. Nahusha, being a snake, is alone. He's not able to be in a relationship until Yudhishthira gives him the chance to become dialogical. And the end result of the discussion between them is that Nahusha is able to retransform himself into his original form because he meaningfully engages in dialogue with Yudhishthira. So Thomas makes a very uh, interesting case here that Nahusha is literally transformed from the asocial snake to the social human or divine being. But that literal transformation is the kind of symbol of the transformation of consciousness that we are to learn from this conversation. In one of the, in, in, in a paper that moves away from looking at largely uh, classical traditions to uh, later uh, traditions, in this case, the Maharashtrian Varkari tradition, uh, Monica Kirloskar-Steinbach writes in a paper called Dialoguing the Varkari Tradition about how uh, three women, uh, Muktabai, Janabai, and Bahinabai, uh, in their uh, bhakti or devotion to the god Victor, establish a very playful yet deeply caring relationship with the divine. And one in which it turns out that they can 
not only pray, but also they can persuade, they can cajole, they can even insult their divine interlocutor. And they are able to uh, bring about a transformation in themselves because they have transformed the God of their devotion from being a distant figure of worship into one with whom they have a, um, a deeply intimate connection. And in doing this, what looks like the most unequal power dynamic between uh, the male personal God and these three women, mortal women, turns out, in fact, to be a sort of expression of their agency because their devotion and their sort of almost provocative friendship shows how they are able to transform their own social conditions. And so it becomes, Kirloska Steinbach suggests, a kind of model for other non-oppressive ways of pursuing intimate relationships. And then in the last of the papers on um, uh, transformation, Jonathan Gein writes in his Convincing the King, Jain Ministers and Religious Persuasion Through Dialogue, uh, about uh, a conversation between the King uh, Mahabala and the Jain teacher Swam Buddha. Now, what is interesting here is that he looks at three different very important texts spread across several centuries, which all portray this conversation between uh, Swayam Buddha and Mahabala, and how in each case, they, uh, the sage sort of teaches how the king might renounce the pleasures of the senses and renouncing the world becomes a Jain mendicant. Now in all three cases, the king is, in fact, transformed. So the transformation works, uh, the dialogue works to bring about the transformation. But you must also remember at the same time that the Jainas, while having very specific doctrinal commitments about the nature of the proper Jain life, the nature of Kaivalya or the highest uh, religious and spiritual achievement, are also deeply pluralistic in accepting that reality is realized in multiple ways, that there are many different paths, that no one uh, statement of truth exhausts the nature of reality. So it's very interesting that, these, that, that, that in this narrative reasoning, the same story with the same Jane conclusion about renouncing the senses and taking the life of mendicancy is nevertheless played out in different versions. So a unifying truth and multiple realizations of the same transformation are enacted in this dialogue between sage and king. And then in the final um, uh, section on interpretations, um, we have a, a, a paper by Maria Hein called The Careful Attention and the Voice of Another. In this, she reads the Pali canonical materials on the suttas through the work of the 5th century commentator Buddha Gosa. Now, Buddha Gosa, perhaps more than anyone else in, in Indian thought, gave a great deal of uh, explicit concern to 
the problem of hermeneutics, that is, how to interpret teachings. And he often did this through taking a close look at how the suttas are often are usually framed by this opening situation called the nidana. And he drew attention to the fact that if you understand this opening framework carefully, then the embedded teachings can be understood much more carefully. So Buddha Gosa's attention to the details of the Nidana, Haim argues, says that not only does it show him trying to understand the meaning of the text itself, he is giving us, the readers, his implied reader of that time, and the readers of the future that he could not himself have imagined, gives the reader a model of reading the text. So Buddha Gosa is doing two things. He is showing how the Buddha taught. He's showing how he is learning how the Buddha taught in dialogue. And implicitly, he brings us into conversation with how he is interpreting how the Buddha taught. So within this kind of nested uh, hermeneutic of context, we find perhaps a, a quite general way of reading dialogue as a mode of an ever-relevant hermeneutic. In his paper, Mahabharata Dialogues on Dharma and Devotion with Krishna and Hanuman, Bruce Sullivan uh, makes the interesting and intriguing point that um, in the Aranyakaparvan of the Mahabharata, there is a dialogue between, uh, the, between Hanuman and Bhima, which has many parallels and thematic resonances with the Bhagavad Gita. They're both discussions between a Pandava warrior and a deity who is also a family, a relative and a family elder. And in both, the deity uses the encounters and occasion to reveal divine form, in each case overwhelming the Pandava disciple. And they also address many of the, uh, the same kinds of themes about uh, the unfolding of time, the passage of time, the ethical uh, tensions between uh, the Kshatriya Dharma, the commitment to be a warrior, and one's own essential longing to live a particular kind of life, Sradharma, and finally also the redemptive emotional uh, importance of Bhakti. So we all, of course, know the Bhagavad Gita much better when we think about Arjuna and Krishna. But Sullivan shows how this intertextual relationship uh, between the Bhagavad Gita and this conversation between Bhima and Hanumat is itself a kind of intertextual dialogue. So the Mahabharata uses dialogue in multiple ways. It uses dialogue not only to narratively enact a set of teachings that we may gain some kind of understanding through, but it is also constantly in dialogue with comparable themes and parallel characters and situations within its own uh, extensive remit. And then the paper staying with the Mahabharata, James Hegarty writes on models of royal piety in the Mahabharata, the case of Vidura, uh, Sanat Sujata, and Vidura. Now, this is, again, something which shows uh, what is particular to the Mahabharata, which is very similar to the previous paper, which is that it is intratextually in dialogue in different places. 
But it is also, as we saw in the case of uh, Dean's paper on uh, the Jain conversations, it is part of a wider classical Indian habit of um, covering and recovering the same kinds of teachings in slightly different contexts. Here we have um, three kinds of conversations in the Udyogaparvan of the Mahabharata. Two are sort of immediate, side by side. This is between King Dhritarashtra, the father of uh, the Kauravas, and his brother and advisor Vidura, followed immediately by a conversation between Dhritarashtra and the sage uh, Sanat Sujata. So the, in these two, um, the two sages um, rather vainly try and get, um, the, that is to say, in vain they try to get Dhritarashtra to change his attitude and take a more equanimous and balanced view of the uh, behavior of his sons and about his own uh, sort of long night or dark night of the soul. In neither of those, as we know, does uh, is, uh, are they successful? Because as we know, in fact, uh, Dhritarashtra is never able to come to terms with uh, his uh, blind love for his sons and the knowledge that they are doing wrong. The third conversation occurs a little later between Queen Vidura, who's a namesake of the sage Vidura, and her son Sanjaya. In this, um, the Queen Vidura berates her son for retreating from battle and exhorts him to act like a man seeking fame in battle and perform his Kshatriya Dharma. And in this, she succeeds because Sanjaya listens to his mother, faces his foes, and goes victoriously through the battlefield. Reading these dialogues together and by paying attention to not only how the texts themselves talk about uh, these ideas, but also about how the manuscript tradition in the subsequent centuries offer different layers of interpretation, Haggerty says that we must look not only at the mutual influences within the texts themselves, but also the uh, relationship between different manuscript traditions of the text. And then finally, uh, my chapter on dialogue and extremists, Valinda Valmiki Ramayana, is one that we have already discussed. Well, thank you very much for going over this rich, rich assortment of papers. Uh, I realize that uh, you have a deadline to meet shortly. So, without. But I hope I've been able to cover for you what you needed. <laughs> I, I, I imagine that this will be very um, enlightening. Um, and enticing for our listeners to go have a look at these articles in this collection. I have been speaking today, I've been in dialogue today with Chakravarti Ram Prasad of Lancaster University. He and Brian Black are co-editor of the book in question entitled In Dialogue with Classical Indian Traditions, Encounter, Transformation and Interpretation. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Until next time, keep reading.